Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. I think if you were to walk into a business school class and you were to ask the class, hey, tell me if this sounds attractive to you. Super large space, very fragmented, low customer service. Who's interested? I think everybody would raise their hand. And then you would say, it's the used car space. And then everybody would drop their hand. Ten years ago, an investment banker saw a for sale sign on a Honda Accord and immediately thought to himself, what do I want to do with my life? Today, this car sale mogul is here to discuss all things automotive, from Tesla to ride sharing to the supposed death of the sedan. So buckle up, flip on the Bluetooth, and do stay with us. This episode is sponsored by Evo Advisors, offering financial advice that is globally experienced and locally based. For those who have more than a 401k to manage, visit goevoadvisors.com. That's goevoadvisors.com. And by Performance Food Service, a proud partner of Virginia restaurants and food service establishments, with more than 13,000 associates in 75 locations nationwide. Online at pfgc.com. Joining me in studio, it's a pleasure to have you, sir. Michael Bohr, co-founder and CEO of Carlots, the country's largest consignment concept for cars. Five states, eight stores, 200 employees. The company was just named EY Entrepreneur of the Year in the Mid-Atlantic for consumer innovation. How are you, Mike? I'm doing well, thanks. Very happy to be here, Robin. Thank you for finally... I, you do have a claim to fame. You can mm. kind of put this on your LinkedIn profile now. You've probably the one guest we've invited the most over five years, and you finally acceded to come on. But it's for a great reason, because you're so darn busy traveling the country and expanding well, You know, I'm busy like a lot of people are busy. I, I think these invites coming 24 hours in advance of when you wanted me to come on is probably what caused the repeat invite. Dang, I'm blessed, yeah. Mike, blessed that you finally came on my show. <laughs> Explain the concept first and foremost. I mean, people know about the used car experience. They know maybe about CarMax or AutoNation or if you're at the dealership and have a captive audience. So like, okay, you want this, you've got a car, you wait until the end of the negotiation. All right, we'll give you $5,000 for it. How are you building a better mousetrap? Yeah, so I think a lot of people know what a consignment store is and they know what a dealership is. And this is, you know, uh, the combination of the two. So we're a consignment store for cars. Uh, the fundamental thesis is that there's a lot of waste and expense in the used vehicle supply chain from the moment that the owner, the previous owner of the vehicle either trades it in or tries to sell it to it going into the wholesale marketplace, maybe going to a dealer, maybe going to an auction, another wholesaler, getting transported to a number of different places, eventually winding up on another dealer's lot and then a buyer eventually buying that, there's a whole lot of waste and expense in that process. And so our concept was, why not connect the buyer and the seller together through a consignment model? And so the way it works is someone will typically have a car to sell, either it's a spare car or they bought a new car and, and they didn't trade it in, they weren't satisfied with the trade-in number, and they don't have the time or desire to go through the private sale process. Uh, maybe they're uncomfortable with the safety aspect, maybe it's a hassle, the danger, et cetera. And so they bring us their car and we show them all the data, comp data, much like a real estate agent would if you were selling your house. Uh, and so we would get you comfortable with what your vehicle might be worth. And typically that will be several thousand dollars above what the, what the dealership offered you for it because that's the wholesale value. So we let you know what we would sell it for. Uh, and then if you agree to sell it through us, you leave the car with us, we get it professionally cleaned, inspected by a mechanic, 
reconditioned to the to an extent where it's safe and uh, and, a, and a good car for the buyer. And then we are we're a retailer, so we're open nine to seven Monday through Saturday. We take phone, internet. Uh, leads 24-7. We do everything possible to get your car sold. And we go on test drives with folks. We offer them financing, trade-in options, warranties, whatever we can do to make it as comfortable for the buyer to buy your car. And then ultimately, they may buy your car. They may make an offer on your car, which we would communicate with you, and we get the transaction done. And then we're a dealer, so we do the plates and tags and titling and all that. And so ultimately, you, the seller, end up with a couple thousand dollars more than your trade-in offer. Uh, usually in, you know, anywhere from zero to 45 days, averaging around 30, uh, sometimes longer if it's a specialty car. Uh, the buyer ends up with a private sale car without going through the hassle of a private sale. So a little bit of a discount from retail. And, you know, we're, we're in the middle, you know, ben- we benefit from being able to deal with both the buyer and the seller on the same transaction. And we, we take a flat fee. It's the same fee we take when we sell a $1,500 car or $115,000 car, because our view is the service we're providing is what we're charging for. And it's the same service we provide when we're selling a Lamborghini versus when we're selling a, a 2001 Ford Focus. So if you're in an elevator and you overhear a guy who desperately wants to sell his car, do you have some sort of Geico-like tagline where 15 minutes or less could save you 15% or more? <laughs> we, do, we don't have a Geico-like tagline. What we found is the concept of consignment is very comfortable for a lot of people. People either buy or sell furniture or clothing or kids, you know, sporting equipment. Um, they're very unaware or uncomfortable with the consignment model for cars. And so, you know, in 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 our hometown in Richmond, Virginia, where we've been operating for eight years, we found that, you know, people generally know who we are. They, they've either sold bought cars through us. They've done several transactions or they know people who have. So it's, you know, people come in and throw us their keys and and they move, you know, they go on with their day and ultimately we'll call them back in a few days with their check. Uh, In new markets, we, the, the, the teammates we hire for our new markets are much more teachers than sales coaches. Uh, Because in a new market, still a lot of people really need to understand how it all works. Oh, I need to leave my car here. What happens with my title? What if there's an insurance issue? So there's a lot of education that uh, comes with the process. But as soon as people have done it once or twice, they say, okay, well, I'm never going to trade in my car again. That's That would be ridiculous. Why would I take thousands less for my car when I can take it here, ultimately go through a process that's no more stressful or time-consuming and end up with thousands more? Michael, walk me back to the um Nervous days of 2009. You're a banker at Harris Williams, right? A lot of people felt lucky to have these jobs during the financial crisis. And this um, Apple metaphorically hits your head when you're walking along Grove Avenue and you see this forlorn Honda Accord with a for sale sign. Um, you know, you, you told me you were uh, looking for love in all the wrong places. In terms of wanting to become an entrepreneur, you were casting about for a startup idea to grow a business. And then it hit you that this was wasteful. There had to be a better way to build this mousetrap. Walk, walk me through the whole process. Yeah, so uh, probably a little more um, extensive than that. I, you know, I, I loved my time at Harris Williams. It's a fantastic organization. And there was, there was really nothing that was... Um, there was like a reverse magnet pushing me away from it. There was this magnetic pull towards entrepreneurship and and starting my own business. And so, um, as a banker travels a bunch, I, you know, on on airplane rides, I would write down ideas and in a notebook that I kept just for this purpose. And um, I would write the idea at the top of the page. And over the over several trips, I would try to fill out a one page business plan on the idea. 
And typically, by the time I got to halfway down the page, I would realize this is not a good idea and I'd move on. And in certain cases, I was able to fill out a full one-page business plan. And then I'd then the, my second screen was I would talk to my wife about it. And, you know, most ideas she would um, rightfully so knock down. And this was one, the Carlotts idea, in, in addition to another one, um, the Carlotts idea was one that I just felt very strongly about. And fortunately, for fortuitously, we're in Richmond, Virginia, where the nation's largest used car business is. And it's, this is a small town. In CarMax. CarMax. And this is a small town. And I was able to kind of pitch the idea to some of the early founders and early executive team of CarMax. And they were, I mean, tremendously generous with their time and sitting with me and walking through what the flaws might be, areas of the business plan that I would need to tighten up and giving me a tremendous amount of advice, uh, given the fact that I, I didn't know anything about the automotive retail space, the used car space. This was just an idea I had. And the idea did stay, you mentioned it, the idea did stem from um, just driving down on my way home from work every day. I'd see there's this uh, strip of Grove Avenue that I would drive down. And um, there are always people parking cars with for sale signs. And it, it always struck me that that was such an inefficient, uh, potentially dangerous hassle-filled way to sell a car, and why couldn't there I be I mean, who still way? did that in 2009? We had Craigslist. Still we had, you know, we had we had eBay, Craigslist, other ways of doing it. Now, you you know, you met with me earlier. What is this app for neighborhood neighbors to keep in touch and everything? You see Next Facebook door. stuff yeah. lifted. I mean, it wasn't on Facebook, but there was garage sale on Yahoo back then. People were still putting for sale signs on their cars. People still do it. They feel like... And the there's... auto trader was still thick, for example, right. where I grew up. You right. Know? Yeah, people still... You know, think they know that a street gets a lot of traffic. They 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 put the car there, and you know, very few people are comfortable pulling over on the side of the road, getting a phone number, calling, leaving a message, trying to meet somebody. So that the whole private sale by parking on the side of the road thing is is largely dead. But you know, still, you know, I've I, bought sushi on the side of the road. Have you? I'm it's still very, here to talk about it. But go ahead. Very dissimilar, but I get it. Um, but what I'd love, you know, so the original, the very original business plan was. Um, that we would borrow a high school parking lot on the weekend or a church parking lot during the week, and we would invite anybody who's selling their car privately to that lot, and we would man it and offer services and make this private transaction just more efficient, more easy. And But ultimately, talking to the executives and the, the folks we talked to at CarMax and other people in the space, they really kind of brought us up to speed on how big this market is and how much demand there would be for a service like this if we were able to make it work economically. And so we raised a small amount of money in um, 2010. Uh, we formed the company in March, and sorry, 2011, and um, and then opened in June of 2011 on the Midlothian Turnpike in Midlothian, Virginia. Uh, we were very excited to for you know our first day uh, at the store. We had 13 cars on the front, and we shared the space with an enterprise rent a car. And very quickly, people came in. They maybe they read about us, or they they knew one of us, and they came in. They bought a car. They bought a second car. They dropped off a car, and people really started to see the value. People were regularly coming to us with eight thousand dollar offers from their dealer uh, to sell their car, and then we were selling their car for twelve thousand, and they were netting eleven thousand, and you know three thousand dollars more on an eight thousand dollar car is uh, nothing to sneeze at. So they would tell their friends, and more cars would come in, and within. Six months, really, the lot was full. Eventually, Enterprise moved out. We took over their space. We opened a second store across the river uh, in, uh, in Richmond, and um, that was profitable and full the first month we opened it. And so we really felt like we were onto something. 
Where did you get the elbow grease, the startup capital to do this? Did you hit up friends, family? So, um, how does that even work? Yeah, so I, I got a lot of advice from you know I didn't know this was not what I knew you know small dollar fundraising for an entrepreneurial idea. It's just not it's not what I did as a banker. It's you know we did kind of big company M and A, but what I, I got a lot of advice from people that that basically pointed me to just start having conversations with potential investors, let them see the thought process, let them see you as you develop the business plan, and don't ask for money. Just ask for advice. I, one is, of my, that, is that kind of making yourself vulnerable? I know that's overused. It gets thrown around a lot on LinkedIn. Well, But you know, kind of showing your hands, not being transactional immediately and kind of walking into that meeting. Absolutely. I mean, people, you know, the, the people I met with had a, a tremendous amount of experience. And so frankly, at that point in the business plan process, I was still trying to figure out whether this is something I wanted to do. So I truly was asking for advice, not just money. But I think in general, the rule has, has played out pretty well that if you ask for money, you get advice. And if you ask for advice, you get money. And that's, that's it worked out well for us that way. And so I got a lot of really good advice early and I, I kept molding the business plan and, and taking some of this advice and changing uh, the, the ultimate plan. And then when I met with them again, when we when we started feeling really confident in the idea, uh, they saw where it had started, where it, where it had come to, and I, I could walk them through the thought processes um, of getting there. And I think they were really impressed with that level of thought in the development of the plan. And that ultimately got them comfortable with us as a founding team. And I think ultimately, the folks who did invest early in, 20, in 2011 in the idea, small amounts, they were investing in Aaron, Will, and I, and our ability to execute on a plan that they thought was good enough. You know, but they were really investing in Aaron, Will, and I to execute on something. For those of you out there, obviously, we're doing radio, and I do have a face for radio. But here, Mike, who's in studio with me, looks kind of like the brawny man, if you can imagine him. <laughs> uh, Aaron looks like a soap opera star, like you'd see him on an MTV kind of youth soap opera. He's a striking man. Will, I would say he looks like a youth pastor. <laughs> And you smash all three of you together and you make, you know, beautiful automotive retail music. And now 200, 200 employees, you know, 10 years later. What's shocking, what's striking to me is not only did you leave a very stable banking job, which is even hard to get in the financial crisis and keep. And I guess your wife sanctioned this idea and said, you're all right, Mike, as a dad to go off and swing on this vine. Yeah. But two, yeah. this was after the bailouts of General Motors and a huge amount of uncertainty about what the carrying capacity uh, – remember they kept throwing around the new normal a lot. Um, are we coming off of a standard of living bubble? What if the economy can't handle 15 million cars a year, new cars? What if we're all going to be living in this prolonged period of deprivation? I mean, who the heck wants to, to try to forecast five, six, seven years of used car sales into that? Well, so interestingly enough, um, the used car market is remarkably stable and remarkably immune to the to the cycle. So if you look 20 years back, um, every year used car volumes have pretty much been between 37 and 42 million units. So uh, the new car cycle is very cyclical. So we'll have 9 million units up to 17 million units. So like 100% swings in either direction. The used car market is very, very stable. And it suffers from tremendously low trust and, you know, uh, consumer KPIs, any any kind of consumer satisfaction KPIs, you know, se second to worst to you know like uh, car service. Breakout or, KPI for our listeners. What does that stand for? Uh, <laughs> key performance indicators. Sure. Um, so, you know, people are not happy with the industry. They're uh, it's a very large industry. So 
there are something like 30,000 used car dealers uh, transacting, you know, 40 million units a year. And that hasn't changed at all in decades. And so I think if you were to walk into a business school class and you were to ask the class, hey, tell me if this sounds attractive to you, super large space, very fragmented, low customer service, who's interested? I think everybody would raise their hand. And then you would say, it's the used car space. And then everybody would drop their hand. <laughs> well, everybody dropped their hand, except for Aaron, Will, and I, basically, uh, with this idea. And nobody really wants to go home and tell their mom that they're leaving their banking job to go be a used car dealer. Uh, it's still a cocktail party joke. It's still a very mistrusted industry. And we're just doing our best to, to try to change that. Mm. Full disclosure, we are talking to Carlot CEO and co-founder Michael Bohr. He's going to talk to us about all things automotive. And there's plenty to talk about, whether you know the ride-sharing world of, of Uber and Lyft. We talk about the obsession with Tesla and Elon Musk, autonomous driving, uh, this idea that the sedan is dead. Uh, jump ball. Start me with any of those. <laughs> well, I think what a lot of people are talking about are e- either or the combined effects of electric vehicles self-driving vehicles, and car sharing. And people generally have you know, either long or short views on, on any of those. They ultimately think they'll all come together and dramatically change the way people own vehicles, the way people drive vehicles, et cetera. And I think in order to really understand it, you have to break it out into its parts. And you know, so let's, let's take electric. Obviously, Tesla has made a lot of noise in the market. And it's, I don't know, have you ever driven a Tesla? Oh, yeah. Yeah. A Amazing. Model S. Amazing. It's incredible. Right? Yeah. Uh, you're on the list? I'm not, but oh. my brother is taking delivery of a Model 3 this week. I awesome. can't believe he's doing it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's super fun. It's very quick. It's feature rich. It feels very safe. Consumer Reports rates it as a tremendous pick from a safety perspective. Um, has really changed the game in automotive, but it's still just a minuscule part of the market. Um, I think you know, Nissan and Chevy and a lot of the big OEMs have really poured a ton of money into making electric vehicles. And what we're seeing is the repeat buy of an electric vehicle is still pretty low. It's growing. But I think, you know, a lot of people are still just buying the or the, the few people that are buying them are buying them because it's a bit of a novelty and let me see how it goes. And then more, still more than 50% of those buyers, when they go to shop again, buy an inter- internal combustion engine car. So electric still has a way to go. The infrastructure is not there yet. Um, it can be more expensive. Fuel is, uh, gas is cheap still. So um, it's just not a super attractive financial play. Um, a little bit of a status symbol to show everybody that you're green. Um, but ultimately, electric has a long way to go. And and who knows whether we'll get there. Um, I think it will be uh, much like hybrids, much like diesel, just an alternative uh, fuel source for vehicles. And maybe over time it grows and shares the space a little, little better than it does today, but who knows. The second big picture topic that everyone talks about is self-driving. And we're already seeing that. And, and I don't know if you've delved into that in other shows, but there are different levels of self-driving, one through five. And um, you know, early self-driving technology is, you know, the cars you have today that beep if you're getting too close sure, to the car sure. in front of you or um, uh, cruise My Subaru control. has like these bionic eyes above the rear view mirror that totally. kind of redirect me or jolt me into submission. Yeah, it might vibrate a little yeah. bit if you go out of your lane. It might beep or actually put on the brake if you're getting too close. Right. All the way up to what you see in, in Tesla, which is, you know. Mine criticizes my podcast. No, anyway, go ahead. Really? Go ahead. Um, what you see with the Tesla is that people are actually falling asleep at the wheel or, you know, setting it on their address and getting home. Um, that's still, you know, not, not quite there. 
people probably should not be doing that. But um, but that is something that I think we will get to. And, and again, it'll be technology that's shared with the traditional way. So I think it's going to be a long, long time before every car drives itself and interacts and talks to each other and talks to the road. And um, I think there are a lot of futurists predict that to happen in the next couple decades, but I think we're still quite a quite a bit away from there. And so in the near term, what's great about self-driving is all the VC money and all the capital that's going into the space is developing a ton of cool technology that is great for self-driving cars, but it's also great for a lot of industries. And so we're seeing just this self-drive, the, the quest for the self-driving car is creating a lot of societal benefits in, a, in and outside of the automotive industry. You know, Dan Neal, the famous autos columnist for the Wall Street Journal, wrote late last year, we are living through the S-curve of electric vehicle adoption. The total number of EVs on global roads surpassed 3 million in 2018, a 50% increase over 2016. In November, Tesla Model 3 was the best-selling small mid-sized luxury sedan in the U.S., and Model S sales... 26,700 year-to-date, outsold Mercedes-Benz S-Class, BMW 6 and 7 Series, and Audi A8 combined. I mean, that's got to be some sort of tipping point. Amazing. Well, no, I mean, you know, that's, that's a little bit of selected data. It's great. It's, it's amazing. I mean, Tesla has done a phenomenal job of really making the very high-end luxury consumer think twice before buying that high-end BMW Mercedes. Um, I think we're still a little bit away from the 3 Series BMW buyer or even the 5 Series BMW buyer buying a, a Model Model 3 um, or a Model S. But you know, certainly the super luxury um, has been interrupted, if not, um, you know, dis- very much distracted by what Tesla has done. I mean, that's a, it's unbelievable if you go to. Uh, my hometown in Miami and go on, on Ocean Drive. I mean, this is no bastion, admittedly, and I think proudly they'd say it's no bastion of kind of enlightened green thinking. It's very aspirational to be seen in a Model X or a Model S or, you know, one of these, you know, Batwing doors to kind of yeah. open up. And it's the Gullwing thing. And so he has Elon Musk and he's, he's looked at as kind of this moonshot guy and he's the most talked about visionary and CEO and founder, I think, since the passing of Steve Jobs. He has kind of crossed the world and that it's not like, you know, one of the early seasons of uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm, you'd see Larry David driving a Prius and trying to make it sexy. Right. No, it's actually a sexy car. Uh, the, the acceleration on it is unbelievable. The interface, the huge iPad facing you, the things that it does, the, the door handles that come out that kind of transcend the need to prove its metal to people and then actually make it an aspirational luxury car. The big question now is can he truly churn out a mass-produced $35,000 family sedan at a time when we'll get into it, the sedan is is diminishing in popularity. Yeah. It's, uh, he, you know, he doesn't have to do it overnight and uh, he doesn't really have to get everyone to buy it. You know, not everyone buys a Chevy and not everyone buys a Subaru. It, it can be one of many successful brands in the space and it can have a certain target market. Um, and it, ha- it does today. Today, it just happens to be the ultra luxury um, and over time, you know, perhaps it can be something more than that. But it's, yeah, there's no doubt. It's super sexy. It's a fantastic car. It beats the others on features and safety and everything else. So it's logically, if you can afford to spend a ton of money, it's a, a fantastic option. To- you talk about spending a ton of money. Tesla's spending a, lot, a ton of money. I mean, there's this there's this broader theme right now, and the capital markets have been hot, and risk on has been going on now for, what, seven, eight years. And a lot of people argue that, this uh, this willingness of Tesla to go out and do moonshots like this, and then the other things he's doing with sending rockets into right. the air and boring tunnels and flamethrowers 
is a result of the profligacy of the capital markets, that you have people willing to extend him decent credit for a company that would otherwise be distressed. Yeah. And a stock market capitalization around $30, $35 billion, it's down from its peak, but it's still a lot. Um, how much of that world right now, EVs broadly, and even ride-sharing and Uber and Lyft, Uber had a massive IPO, is being subsidized by uh, you know, the, the venture back market and the IPO market. Huge. I mean, it's it's such an exciting space. I mean, v- VCs, private equity guys, they love big market. So there is virtually no bigger market than the automotive or transportation space. It's massive. If you count the sale of the vehicle, fuel, you know, everything that goes, the service, parts, everything that goes into uh, transportation and vehicles, it's a, it's a gargantuan industry. And so what you have is people taking huge bets that it's going to continue to evolve and, and grow and people will make money doing that. There are several auto, in, in, our, in our space, several auto retailers, and we've raised some venture money, but, you know, the amount we've raised pales in comparison to companies that have raised hundreds of millions and some billions to change the way people buy and sell cars. And none of the none of those new models that have raised that amount of money are anywhere near, some of them are out of business already, and the rest are nowhere near making money. But people continue to write nine-figure checks to these companies because the view is that at some point, uh, the volume is going to be there and the gross profit is going to be enough that multiplied by the volume, there will be a real business plan there. And some people might do it and some people might not. It's EV FOMO, frankly. You're very familiar with Audi and, and Volkswagen and coming out of its massive scandal, you know, even though the cars get panned their first EV entrance, it seems like Tesla has an enormous lead in terms of uh, customer satisfaction and consumer reports ratings. These other guys out there are saying, hey, look at us. Watch us. I mean, Toyota's out there saying, we still have a hybrid fleet. We're going to go a little more slowly. There's still hydrogen. Don't forget about hydrogen. <laughs> I imagine Detroit, somewhere GM is going to have to catch up with this, especially if this massive SUV fever breaks. Yeah. Yeah. So on the, you know, on the types of cars, you, know, we, you hear a lot about um, SUVs and trucks taking over. Um, I think that's a that's a recurring theme as fuel prices come down and as they go up again, which is, you know, th- that operates on a very tight cycle. So even just in the eight years we've been in business, we've gone from trucks and SUVs being virtually unsellable to now being super popular. And um, all, all, all in all, ultimately, people want an affordable car. And so the big trend that we're definitely seeing, and this is somewhat new, is that people are shying away from the new car and going to a slightly used car. And the, 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 that shift has been remarkable over the last few months. And, and it's because there's so much technology in new cars now that the prices of new cars have just gotten to a point where even with banks willing to lend uh, you know, for 72 or 84-month terms and you know, leasing companies taking you know kind of crazy residuals into into account when coming up with their lease rates. Even then, it's just really really expensive to buy a 2019 anything. And so people are looking at used cars and saying, okay, well, I can get 90% of the features, or 85 or 95% of the features, and I can save all that depreciation that you hear about when you drive off the lot. And I can get a really, really nice car that's probably been taken care of, that's still under warranty. I can get an extended warranty. I can feel really good about a 2017, a 2016. And how far back can you go? And if you can go back to 15, 14, you can get a wonderful car for eight, ten thousand dollars 10000 And even if you're buying a nearly new car, instead of 
paying forty or $50,000 for a car, you can get a wonderful car in the 20s or low 30s. And so we're seeing a ton of that. And, and because we're seeing that, because if someone eventually gets to the used space, then they all of a sudden they're like, okay, I don't need to spend. Now I see a dealership that has a huge variety of cars. I don't need to just look at one type of car or just look at one type of financing option. Now I have a ton of options and I can go a little older, a little newer. Um, and so when they when they feel like they can go a little older, then all of a sudden they can afford an SUV or a truck. And that's why you're seeing more of those selling. But we still, I mean, Robin, we were talking about it earlier, but we sell a tremendous amount of sedans. We do not see the sedan going away. First of all, we sell a ton of sedans to Uber and Lyft drivers who um, have become a big part of the car. Yeah, that's their bread and butter. Yeah. Right. And they're still wonderful on fuel economy. Uh, they're very affordable. They hold their value so that, you you know, you're not buying a massively depreciating asset. And yet Ford, asset. Ford out there is phasing them out, right. it announced. I mean, right. you know, they want, they're, they're of a limited resource company. They didn't take a bailout in 2008 and 2009. And that they're saying that the market is telling us we want crossovers. We want things that are hybrid, these Frankensteinian SUVs mixed with sedans that have an extra row in the back right. and maybe four-wheel drive. Yeah. And that's, you know, those aren't necessarily SUVs. I mean, the, the, the term crossover... I don't know that it necessarily has a real defined meaning. It just means that maybe the roof's a little higher. Maybe it's, you know, it, it's a little bit longer or a little more rugged looking. But ultimately, I mean, you look at something that might be called a crossover, like a GLA Mercedes. It's tiny. I mean, these things are not, you know, SUVs in any sense of what we knew an SUV 10 years ago. You know, the Suburban, the Tahoe, the Expedition or the Excursion, big truck-like vehicles that help you carry things, you know, a lot of things or tow a boat. Um, that's not really what's driving all this. I think a lot of people just, they want a little more room. It's a little more practical to not have a trunk, but instead to have, you know, some sort of hatch. And I think these people are moving in that direction, but we're not necessarily seeing um, a tremendous shift away from smaller practical cars. They're just shaped in, in, a, in a shape that some people can call crossovers, and so you're seeing that shift. You know, I got a fever, and the only prescription is a crossover called an El Camino with <laughs> Corinthian leather and purple neon, maybe from the vintage 1983. Do you carry any of these jalopies on your lots? We don't, but the El Camino reminds me a lot. I don't know. If the Subaru seen... Baja? Well, the Subaru <laughs> Baja, too. Um, but have you seen the new Jeep truck? I have not. Yeah, so the Jeep, the Wrangler, it looks like the front looks like a Wrangler and the back is a pickup truck. And uh, Jeep dealers cannot keep them in stock. Seriously. You'll be seeing a ton of these. And I, I bumped into somebody who went to a Jeep uh, test drive event for these, and he said it was phenomenal. What else can't you keep on the lots? We talked about the old school kind of Eddie Bauer. No, they weren't Eddie Bauer. Was it Eddie Bauer edition uh, or LLB edition Subaru Outbacks yeah. in the mid-90s? Yeah, Eddie Bauer was the ex expedition or excursion. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. The LLB, LLB edition, edition Subaru Outback. That's the, right. The quintessential car of Vermont. Super Apparently, there are wealthy people who are trying to buy the ones with 300,000 miles. It's a status symbol. There yeah. was a Wall Street. Hey, it was in the Wall Street Journal, Mike. Right. It has to be right. Go on. Well, you know, people, very wealthy people are spending a lot of money. To, this is a, obviously ultra niche part of the market, but wealthy people are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to get old school Broncos, old school, uh, like the Woody Jeep uh, Wagoneers. Um, they go, there are certain distributors that specialize this, go to junkyards, find them, totally rebuild them so that they're 
uh, indistinguishable from new and sell them for $150,000. I got to ask you, I was a huge fan of Breaking Bad, which also has an RVA connection and Vince Gilligan. <laughs> Did you see an uptick in Pontiac Aztec demand after that show? <laughs> I mean, Aztec this is the most embarrassing car GM ever put out, but it took on ironic fame after that show ended in, in 2012, was it? It is wildly known as the ugliest car ever ever made. And, you know, my kids pointed, and they, they know what one looks like. They point it out every time they see one. Um, Can you sell any ironically? You know, it's funny. Uh, the Aztec is really good at being a car for this is you, this is going to be a fact you don't know. The Aztec is really good at being a car for someone who has uh, a wheelchair or it drives someone else who has a wheelchair. It's very easy the way it's built somehow to fold up a wheelchair and put it in the back of an Aztec. And so it becomes uh, the car of choice for people who are e- either are in a wheelchair or have family who are in a wheelchair because it makes it very easy to transport the wheelchair for whatever reason. So I have to tell you, we don't sell a lot of Aztecs, but the last three or four that I know we sold, which and, and that's three or four over many years, <laughs> have been to uh, people who've come in and said, this is the car I look for because it's so easy to put a wheelchair in the back, which is kind of unusual, right? I didn't know that. What other kind of esoteric things? I always ask people if I'm sitting next to you at a wedding or a bar mitzvah, God forbid, a funeral, like what is that one thing parenthetically you would tell me? Like the old... The old uh, saw about the sushi chef telling you never eat sushi on a Sunday night, <laughs> at least eat it on a Monday when they get the shipment. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think these days it's v- education is key in terms of getting um, – in terms of really understanding value of a car. And uh, we were talking about this a little bit earlier. Un- unlike most people, most people don't really consider car like a unique piece of art. But once a car is used, it is very much a unique piece of art. There is no value to that vehicle um, until someone makes an offer. And then if that's an accepted offer, then that becomes the value of the vehicle. And so a lot of people often call or they send in their VIN and the mileage. They say, what's my car worth? Well, you know, there's a fairly wide range for what your car is worth until the buyer comes along that, that likes hits the that, price, yeah. that hits that bid. So um, I think the more you can do, the more the consumer, either the consumer being the seller of a vehicle or the buyer of a vehicle, the more research they can do online by visiting several dealers, um, by just looking at comps, the more they can do, and then really being critical of the of the asset they have. You know, every, everyone, a lot of people think their car is, is their, a pretty, pretty baby, but, you know, you might want to ask uh, a neighbor who you trust to kind of look at it and tell you what they think is wrong with it, because likely the buyer will find the same things wrong with it, and those will have value implications typically. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Michael Bohr. He is co-founder and CEO of CarLots, the country's top consignment store for cars. Uh, This company started with pretty much just an idea 10 years ago, and it now has 200 employees, five states worth of eight stores expanding left and right. Where are you guys in in, uh, North Carolina, Virginia, Tampa, Florida? Tampa, Florida, uh, San Antonio, Texas, and Chicago, Illinois. And uh, one thing we haven't talked about is what's driving our national expansion, which is the work we do for fleets and companies that have vehicles to sell. So as we discussed, we're a consignment store for cars. Consumers bring us their cars. We sell the car for them. So our specialty is really selling vehicles that we don't own. We sell vehicles for other people. Well, five or six years ago, as we You're were, down with OPP, other people's property. Other people's properties. Go ahead. Um, so a few years ago, we were trying to figure out how to get more and more vehicles on the lot. And uh, the consumer market is is large, but you know one of the downsides to our model is the car needs to be on our lot for us to sell it. And so the 
the population of consumers who can go without their car while we're selling it is limited. And so we started brainstorming on who else has cars to sell. And we happened upon the commercial market. And the commercial market we view, we, we um, term as any entity that is selling a car. So if it's a, f- a small mom and pop business that has a few vans, a Fortune 500 company that has a fleet, a leasing company, a bank, a credit union, another dealer, um, really anybody who goes and wholesales their vehicles when they're done with them, a, a company that does that, that's our target. And so our growth has been dramatically boosted by doing what we do for the commercial side of the market. And that's called automotive remarketing, auto remarketing. And typically, before we existed, auto remarketing happened in old school, physical brick and mortar auto auctions. It sounds like a mafia thing almost. <laughs> well, it's a, it's not a mafia. It's, it's, it's a king and queen business, just like Home Depot and Lowe's or McDonald's and Burger King, where they're two lar- very large players who kind of split the market. Odessa is one and Mannheim is the other. And they're, they're wonderful businesses. They sell millions of cars a year. Uh, but they sell them for wholesale values. And we go to the same clients that work with Odessa and Mannheim, and we say, getting wholesale values for your beat-up, wholesale looking cars is probably the right thing to do. But certainly, in your fleet, there are cars that you're selling that are great, and they don't need a ton of reconditioning work, and they're ready to go to the consumer. And instead of getting a wholesale value for those, you should get a retail value for those. Incidentally, I did notice when you walked into the studio, your two kneecaps are intact. <laughs> They are. To the best they of my are. knowledge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. real kneecaps. And um, so we started working for large corporations that have fleets of vehicles, and they absolutely love what we're doing for them. So they, they're typically getting one to $2,000 more per vehicle, net of all fees and expenses, than they otherwise would if they had sent it through the wholesale channel. And you multiply that times the hundreds of thousands and millions of vehicles they sell a year, and all of a sudden you're talking about billions and billions of dollars of value that we can create by disintermediating the auction from the process. And so that has really driven a ton of excitement on our business model. And uh, I should mention, the cars that we're selling for these large commercial accounts are cars that you as a consumer would absolutely be buying. So they're three-year-old leases of sedans, SUVs, and trucks. They're um, sometimes older vehicles, sometimes higher miles, but they're all vehicles that ultimately will end up on a used car dealer's lot somewhere. We're just saying, don't go through the whole supply chain, bring it to us, we'll get a retail value for it. And so they're really driving our national expansion. Mike, any truth to the old saw that no human in the history of humankind or the automobile has ever washed a rental car? <laughs> we, uh, do you deal with the rental car companies? We do deal with the rental car companies. Now, some of them sell their own vehicles. So, you know, Hertz has Hertz car sales. Enterprise has Enterprise car sales. Um, outside of those two, we work for several large um, uh, uh, rental car companies that maintain their vehicles very well and have, you know, three- to five-year-old vehicles that they otherwise would take to an auction and would otherwise end up on another used car lot. We take them straight to the consumer. We, we do wash them. We, we clean them and get them inspected by a mechanic and make sure that they're fantastic vehicles, and we sell them. And those cars do tremendously well. We have a client, for example, that has a ton of Jettas and Passats. Uh, we can't get enough of those. These are ten dollars to $15,000 vehicles that have been maintained really well by the rental car company because they obviously use them. They need them to be in good shape for rental. We see them sell in you know days, not weeks, and uh, the buyers are very, very happy. Yeah, isn't it Silvercar that just rents those out? Silvercar is a super cool company. It was bought by Audi. Audi, yeah. Yeah, it, they only rent silver Audis. Yeah. So they started with just the A4, 
Uh, now they do the A5 convertible. I had no idea that Audi and Volkswagen was still this popular after their their year of scandal a couple they've, of years ago. They've never been more popular. Um, obviously, they did go through that issue with the diesel engines, but they they make a fan, they make a fantastic quality car. They're also you know very strong on style, very strong on safety and affordability. Is there one car, one make and model that most excites you to be on your lot? That's like automatic. It's money. Uh, whenever we get a Subaru. It sells super really? fast. Uh, but I, I could say the same for Volkswagens. Uh, we sell a tremendous amount of Fords. I mean, for, you know, Ford and Chevy, the domestics, are still very, very popular with our, you know, with our buyer guests. Um, but, yeah, Subarus, we were ta- talking about this earlier. You know, you get uh, – we don't get them very often because the Subaru buyer is one that kind of keeps that Subaru for a very long time, typically. Obviously, there are exceptions. And so when we get them – uh, we sell them very quickly. I toured the factory in Lafayette, uh, Indiana, uh, and was just blown away. I mean, there's such a wait list for people to work there. Uh, they were churning out a few Toyotas back then, but they were at capacity utilization and they were going to have to bump out. Um, to think that all these were made in old popcorn country, popcorn fields. And uh, the Subaru people, I used to live on the Upper West Side. And if you go into Vermont or you were talking to us about Washington State or Northern California, it's quite a cult following. Yeah. It's a, it's a great car. I mean, it's um, – it's it's a brand that has really built the brand to mean something, and it means something to the owners of that car. Is it a better car than a Toyota Rav Four or a you know a comparable um, Nissan? I don't know. I don't know that the that the data suggests that. But have they built a stronger brand uh, and cult following than any of those uh, OEMs? Absolutely. And OEMs are mean auto manufacturers. You're trying to say yes. I have to ask you, um, and this goes back to the conversation we had about electric vehicles. There's always talk about range anxiety and if I buy a Tesla and, uh, yes, I, I on average maybe travel 20 miles or 30 miles a day. If I'm going to travel to D.C. or take my kids to a Nationals game or something, maybe I'm going to try travel 120. So I'll keep it charged and keep in mind where the superchargers are. But there's also now this incipient talk of car value anxiety. If you pony up for a fully-fledged uh, internal combustion vehicle and we approach a kind of a hockey stick moment for electric vehicles, you're left with something possibly worthless in five or six years. Do you buy that? Um, that does happen. You know, it's it's interesting that you bring that up. We were meeting with a company in Chicago that only sells electric cars. Mm. It's a it's a dealership that only sells electric, electric cars. Very cool company. It's called, I think it's called Current Automotive. And what, what they were saying is a bigger problem for them is that Tesla and some of these other manufacturers have the ability to do, you know, system-wide, nationwide upgrades of the technology overnight. And so uh, they, as a dealer of these vehicles, and you as a maybe a consumer of the vehicle, you might pay up today for a feature that with one with press of a button, Elon can make available to everybody for free tomorrow. And so it's very difficult to hold inventory or to pay up at auction for a vehicle that you're, you're buying to resell when the, the, maybe the feature that you just paid up for all of a sudden is standard at the push of a button. So I've seen that a little bit lately. You know, I don't know that anybody um, – well, I, I shouldn't say anybody, but the internal combustion engine, just just for the fact that cars have 10-plus-year lifespans, I mean, there are a lot of ICE engines built today that will be here for the next decade or two. And so any shift away from ICE will take decades and decades. And I think, you know, like we said earlier, I think the, there's something to the electric phenomenon it's going to take a long, long time, and certainly range anxiety is one piece of it. But 
Um, but so is cost and so is the cost of fuel and so is, you know, the infrastructure to support charging that many vehicles. It's just it's it's going to be a long time before we see that. And we may not ever see it kind of flip. Well, over. you hit on something with this up update method. It kind of reminds me of an iPhone and how I, you know, in terms of agreement, if there's an iOS upgrade thing, I hit the thing and and there's a certain manufactured obsolescence after a certain period. Apple would like me to shell out another thousand dollars for a bigger iPhone that I don't necessarily need. In previous years, I'd keep a phone for a long time. But maybe this points to what I think Volvo was trying to nudge people to do a couple of years ago is to get in the mindset of subscribing to cars. And not the least thing, but kind of all-inclusive you know, this is getting at another megatrend in the economy, the subscription economy. And this kind of dovetails with a little bit with ride sharing. And we subscribe to things such as Netflix and Amazon Prime. And how long before the, the I mean, the big two and a half and Toyota and Volkswagen and Nissan and everybody come around to realizing that maybe people just don't want to take on the enormous you know, $25,000, $30,000 asset that sits in the sun all weekend long that they don't use all the time. Right. Yeah. So uh, we, we mentioned it earlier in the show, and we didn't actually hit this, that the third big uh, megatrend is ownership, sharing. You know, how, do, how do people own cars in the future? Today, um, I bet you if we went into your car, it would not only be your car, but it would be your music source. It would be a, maybe a gym locker for you. You're storing stuff in there. You have your kid's car seat that fits, that's sized to there, and you feel safe that it was put in correctly. So there are lots of reasons you own a car that's not just to get from point A to point B. It's really all the other stuff that the car is to you, gym locker, you know, comfort zone. Um, I, I often get to meetings early, and I sit in my car, and I do phone calls, and it's a nice, quiet, air-conditioned space where I can do that until the meeting starts. There are lots of reasons why I really enjoy having my own car. That's fine, but it's my own iPhone, and I could subscribe to that car and just hand it back without, you know, there could be depreciation and other things. It's just the way that you package it. Instead of a lease and residual value and miles, I'm subscribing to it. Right. So that's subscription. I was talking about sharing. So where the car shows up, I use it for right. the hour to go to yeah, work. Yeah, that, and that I could see the limitations. Uh, yeah. The subscription model, you know, a lot of the car manufacturers have tested it. Um, it has not you know, taken yet with anybody but the very high end. I mean, I think there are some very, um, um, very wealthy car buyers who um, renew subs- their cars every two, subs- three years. Well, anyway, they, they you don't might subscribe to the Porsche plan where you can, you know, every week you can go in and get a different Porsche. Very expensive, cool. You know, you can kind of jump in and out of a Cayenne or a Cayman or a 911, um, but it's it's not really for. Uh, it's not it's not very practical. Um, and yeah, obviously very low adoption rates. Um, the the longer-term subscription plan, there's a company called Fair that is basically doing a subscription, but it's just, you know, ultimately a, a shorter-term lease. Um, people have people have gotten uh, very excited about that, uh, especially in the uh, ride-sharing community. So a lot of Uber and Lyft drivers lease through a Fair or a, a similar business because they can get service, the car, everything, you know, it's their business and they, they know what payment they need to make at the end of every month it, so they can budget how much they need to drive. And, and the only thing they, the only external cost is fuel. Mm. Everything else is covered in the payment. So if your business is the driving of cars, like you're an Uber or Lyft driver, um, some sort of subscription model could make a lot of sense for you. It's a little more expensive than doing it the traditional way. Uh, but, you know, if you're, if you're a lower credit consumer 
or you don't know how to get funding, or you're new to the country and don't have credit, or or you ha- or you're not new to the country and you don't have credit, um, a a company like a fair or something that can a company that can subscribe you a car so you can get into business for yourself is very attractive. Mike, do you buy this idea that uh, uh, millennials, people, especially who came of age professionally and financially, uh, in the wake of the financial crisis in 2008, would rather just Uber everywhere and Lyft everywhere. I meet businessmen who've stopped renting cars. They say that the fully loaded cost with with parking, hassle, convenience, the airport time, just Uber everywhere. Just do it asset light. Do you think we're on the brink of a generational shift where people stop thinking they need to buy cars? Yeah. I'm sure you get asked this a lot. All the time. And me as a, I travel a ton and I very rarely rent cars. I used to rent cars every time I landed in the airport. You know, that was, you go to the, straight to the Hertz counter. Um, so I don't do it anymore. And so a lot of times I'm tainted by the way I do things, but the data would suggest otherwise. The rental car companies are doing fantastically well. People are continuing to rent more and more. And so they're doing great. Um, the general concept of millennials or younger people getting to be 16 or 17, driving age and not wanting cars, I think anecdotally, you can definitely point to some kids who don't care about getting a license. Whereas in our day, there was probably nobody who didn't race to the DMV on the first day that they that they needed to. But ultimately, you know, whether uh, eventually they will r- realize that they need a vehicle to get to a job or get somewhere and they're going to, you know, somehow work with whatever models are available for them to get into that vehicle. Today, it's ownership. Maybe it's subscription. Maybe it's some sort of lease. But why? If you take the fully loaded cost of ownership and maintenance and insurance and everything and compare it to being an a la carte consumer of just Uber and Lyft all the time, isn't it pretty compelling, actually? In very dense markets, yes. So absolutely. If you live in New York City, San Francisco, um, you know, you get out to Houston where it's two hours from one side to the other, or even here in Richmond where sometimes you, you want to go out to the mall and that's a 25 minute drive. I think it starts to become less economic the, the further out you need to go every day. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think there's something to this concept in <laughs> Manhattan, but that's been around forever in the yellow cab. So there are a lot, I, I never owned a car when I lived in Manhattan. Um, and I wouldn't own one today if I lived in Manhattan. I would probably rent if I wanted to get out of the city like I did back then. But, you know, it's I think there it's a shift from yellow to Uber. Uh, in some cities, um, maybe people decide to Uber back and forth. But again, I think that's more anecdotal than people truly giving up the car forever. I mean, it, it does happen. I mean, certainly there are people who can tell you that they gave up their car. You, you can find those people. It's just minuscule quantities. You know, Mike, um, in the 10 minutes or so that we have left, I'd like to get back to Uber to a certain extent. And uh, we flicked at it beforehand. Uber had a blockbuster IPO. It's got an enormous valuation. But if I were to turn around and, and we, we pose this question before to venture capitalists and say, you know, you want to disrupt a business like this. I understand, you know, there was a Bloomberg story written in maybe 2012 or 2013 that said the New York City taxicab medallion outperformed all these other asset classes since uh, the early, you know, 1980s. And it was an amazing thing if you were the person who actually owned it and you got the rents from the driver. But I wouldn't imagine that um, the taxi business and the the day-to-day transportation business is one that I would think is so lucrative, Right. Right. If you assign this enormous valuation to Uber and you're saying, well, we're right now offering uh, VC subsidized 
uh, rides that compete with taxi cab services, making us seem like the future of transportation. We're worth a lot. But who knows what these rides would cost in a bad economy or if we didn't have drivers or if we could make the shift to autonomous driving. Is there part of you that wonders if that's actually a bubble and not a new normal? Uh, I always wonder. I've, I, you know, when I went to my business school reunion and took Uber for the first time, when I take it around places, and they end up giving me these bonuses, and I end up paying seven dollars and fifty cents for a long ride. I was like, "How is this happening?" Yeah, I think that you know, Uber Uber's magic is not in changing the way we get from one place to the next. It's in the interface between the consumer and the driver. So it, you'll recall, it used to be a huge pain to call a yellow cab. You'd stand out there, you'd wave your arms wildly, you'd hope that someone stops. Maybe it's raining, maybe it's freezing. You, the, the person picks you up. You have no idea who this is or whether they're, you know, what their background is or how how they're rated. It's a huge hassle to try to figure out how to pay them and have to carry all this cash and get change and figure out the tip and everything about it was a huge chafe. And ultimately today, you still stand on the side of the curb, you get into a vehicle, it takes you where you want to go and you get out. It's just the whole transaction piece of it is easier. And that's what they've been, that's what they've done magically. So it's absolutely a technology company, not a really an automotive company. Now, all the things they're doing outside of just their ride hailing business is significant and potentially disruptive of the industry. Uh, they're working on uh, autonomous vehicles. They're working on car sharing. They're working on everything. Well, Mike, they're know? not doing this profitably right no, now. Your no, no. cabbie, your cabbie, you know, your yellow cabbie can do it profitably, can cut a living out of it. No yeah. Uber driver I have ever met has been elated with his job or Lyft driver. I mean, that's anecdotal, maybe out of a hundred Uber rides that I've taken. Yeah. I think, you know, I think ultimately, um, if you just stripped out the piece of the business that is uh, enabling a ride seeker to connect seamlessly with a ride giver and provide that ride, if that was the only thing that Uber was, I just can't imagine it wouldn't be a, a profitable business. Yeah, but, but you can't. Even if these cars are not your assets, even if these uh, these drivers are not your workers or they're not even 1099, it's just a pure uh, you know, Fiverr-type relationship, a gigger, a jobber out there. Uh, you have to depend – right now, at least the autonomous technology is not there. You have to depend on drivers willing to take that kind of pay. And I'm just I'm just wondering if all of this is on very shaky foundation. Yeah. Um, it's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I, I've, I've definitely bumped into drivers that, you know, suggest that it's very difficult to make a living doing this, but I think it, it might be market specific. It might, you know, I, I generally the Uber and Lyft drivers, and I take those, both of those a lot. I, I generally find them to be pretty satisfied with this as a, either a supplemental source of income that allows them to take some of that uh, unused spare capacity of time that they had and make it profitable for them or as a full-time job if they're going to, you know, really kind of pour their all into it. The ones I'm surprised at is, you know, when you get picked up by, uh, you know, someone in an F-350 truck that's <laughs> clearly getting eight miles per gallon and it's an uncomfortable ride. And you know, I, I just don't know how those work. That might be someone who's just, you know, getting into the getting into the business. But if you're smart about it, you have a fuel-efficient vehicle or some sort of hybrid, you... Um, you solicit decent tips because you're providing a good service. You keep the AC on and you don't blare your music. And I think it's very, it's, it's, ve it's very possible for you as an Uber driver to do okay. Now you're not, you know, you're not going to get, you know, like computer programmer money doing that. But, you know, a lot of times this is just spare money on the side and it's great. 
You have a few minutes left, Michael Bohr, to go what we call free skate. And to the extent that you've subordinated your reputation to finally come on this show <laughs> after five years of pleading with you, predictions, observations, general riffs, go ahead. Yeah, I think, that, you know, I am fascinated by the automotive industry. Obviously, um, I, was, I was a car nut, a little bit of a car nut growing up. I've always been in and around vehicles. Um, it's an area that I, I find very interesting. Um, it's a very stable, especially the used car side of the industry, very stable market. And I think a lot of people are putting a lot of money into betting that this industry is going to change dramatically in a very short period of time. And I guess the the term dramatic and short period of time is all relative. Hmm. I mean, I think just the way people use cars, uh, the way people buy cars, the way people own cars, the way people drive them, what they use them for, both commercial and consumer – is so broad uh, and far-reaching that nothing is going to change overnight in this industry. Um, there's, there's, it's certainly a big enough industry that investors uh, and speculators in change can make money by getting even just a small sliver of it to change. But I think that's what we're going to see more than anything. I mean, we might see electrification of vehicles uh, become a very big thing, but very big could mean twice as big as it is today or 10 times as big as, as it is today. It's still not going to be anywhere near the ICE engine. We may see more people share vehicles, maybe 10x what we're seeing today. So that could create a fantastic return for whoever's investing in that. But that's still a minuscule part of the industry. And the guy who drives an F-150 um, with uh, because he works for an HVAC company, uh, he's not going to share his truck uh, and try to figure out how to get equipment to his job site. He's going to own that vehicle, and he's going to need it to be, you know, be a, a vehicle that is profitable for him to run. So I think in general, there's a lot of change and a lot of cool things happening in automotive. But it's probably going to look fairly similar to what we see today um, at the core. Uh, in 10 years. And what will change is kind of the tail ends of the bell curve. And then what is that one thing that you want to tell people on the side at the wedding, if you had a little more time to think about it? <laughs> what is the one thing I got to know? The one thing at the car dealership, the one thing before I buy a car, you seem pretty kind of zen about it. You're, yeah. you're happy with quality across the board. I think people generally, I mean, unless you're buying a very expensive car, I think people generally think the used car dealer is killing it, uh, selling cars to them. And I think the one thing people need to know is a used car dealer typically makes about a thousand bucks by selling that car to you, and then they might make another one to two thousand dollars on that same transaction, either from the bank that's financing you or the warranty company that's providing you a warranty. And so, in general, a, a dealer is making three thousand dollars, and multiplied by the number of cars that they sell, they're probably doing okay. Uh, they're not absolutely killing it. And so to go in there and, you know, see a car that's listed at 10 and offer six, um, you know, you, you shouldn't be surprised if, you're, if your offers get rejected. I'm going to hold you to it, Mike Boy. You are going to come back on this show when you are an IPO flush trillionaire, and it's not <laughs> going to be five years from now. Congrats on all the success. Michael Bohr, CEO and co-founder of CarLots. You're welcome back anytime, sir. Thank you, Robin. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Catch this show on NPR member station 88.9 WCV News, on NPR.org and the NPR One app, and, of course, on iTunes at linkfulldradio.com. We are Rack and Pinion hydraulically-assisted overhead camshafts of high-torque audio enlightenment. And remember, we wouldn't sell you a podcast, we wouldn't listen to ourselves. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week.